Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Right, so welcome to the last SNID event of the year. Uh, we are extremely grateful for you all taking time out of what we know is really busy days uh, and really hectic time to gather with us virtually as you have been doing all season. So thank you very much for being with us. First, we'd like to acknowledge that SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which is located on the shores of Lake Ontario on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. The territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario. Our SNID activities, although virtual, are profoundly grounded in and facilitated by the Queen's institution that resides on these lands, an institution that is complicit in upholding the structure of settler colonialism and white supremacy. We hope SNID has been and can continue to be a site of learning and unlearning and trying to undo some of the ways that the series and the institution is complicit in anti-Black and anti-Indigenous violence. Over the last couple of years, we've been committed to thinking about decolonial and anti-colonial praxis in and outside the academy, um, and particularly thinking with and across Black and Indigenous studies and scholars. Uh, and we're very grateful today that two leading scholars of Black studies and Black studies chairs are with us. And so I will hand it over to Aicha to give their introductions. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, when Carolyn and I started our work as co-chairs of SNED last year, uh, in September, uh, well, in September 2020, uh, we opened the year with the panel titled Imagining the University as a Site of Black Liberation uh, with Ketron and Kitchard, Kristen Moriah, and Renny Whitaker. The panel provided our audience a space to have a conversation on Queens and in general university as a site of possibility or impossibility of black liberation and impact on your work. After two years of that discussion and with the black studies program degree uh, finally established at Queens, we are thrilled to have this conversation with Drs. Daniel McNeil and Vanessa Thompson. Daniel McNeil is a professor in the Department of Gender Studies at Queen's University and the Queen's Mission Scholar Chair in Black Studies. His teaching and scholarship in Black Atlantic Studies explore how movement, travel, and relocation have transformed and boosted creative development, the writing of cultural history, and the calculation of political choices. Thinking While Black is a book about political, intellectual, artistic, and activist work of soul that travels Black Atlantic intellectuals and planetary humanists uh, over the past 50 years, will be published by Rogers Universe Press and Between the Lines in Fall of 2020. Uh, Vanessa Thompson is an assistant professor in the Department of Gender Studies at Queen's University. Her work focuses on Black studies, evolution, critical racism, and migration studies, and activist ethnographies. She has published on Blackness and Black movements in France and Europe, uh, Europe more broadly, and Black abolitionist struggles and world making. Vanessa is a member of the International Independent Commission on the Death of uh, Ori Jalo, 
and organizes with evolutionist feminist collectives in Europe and globally. Thank you, Vanessa and Denia, for joining us today. We are thrilled to have you. Thanks so much for that um, generous introduction. Thanks so much for the invitation. We're so grateful to be here um, after such an exhausting, draining, challenging, stimulating year. And we'd like to thank everyone for carving out some time in their busy schedules to join us to think about interdisciplinary studies of liberation. Um, I'm just gonna share my screen if that's okay. Let me know if this looks okay to everyone. Okay. Um, so in our conversation this afternoon, we'd like to explore how our intellectual, political and activist work has been transformed and boosted by Black Studies outside, beyond and within the university. We'd like to maybe start just by thinking about where we're coming from, right? So thinking about the learning environments that have helped us to imagine and explore and scrutinize the aspirations and achievements of global black communities. What's provoked us into learning? What's galvanized us? What's helped us to go in search of what Richard Aiton calls the Black Fantastic. Secondly, we'd like to think about, you know, maybe to borrow and adapt one of Dion Brand's most compelling titles, what we long for in our learning environments, um, what we long for in universities. And we're hoping that that type of question can help us to think about what we desire our learning environments look and feel like, but also think and lead into this final question where we'd really like to think with you about our, not just our position as re relatively recent arrivals at Queens, but also what we can learn by joining the longest running weekly interdisciplinary series at Queens. So we'd really like to think with you about how all of this speaks to work at Queen's around national and international development. For example, how might the questions, thematic areas, issues explored today relate to your activist, intellectual and political projects? How might it help us to think about problematics, challenges around institutional memory and archiving? How might it help us to think about how we disrupt methodological nationalism and attend to local and translocal frames of meaning as much as national, international, and transnational ones? So I'll maybe just say a little bit um, about where I'm coming from and then pass it over to Vanessa um, to think through these questions in a little bit more depth. But just as a brief introduction, um, I often talk with students about one of the best known Black Atlantic intellectuals, C.L.R. James, and his revealing anecdote 
when he reflects about meeting the African-American novelist Richard Wright, who, while showing him books that he'd recently purchased by Kierkegaard, told James that everything he knew in those books, he knew before he had them. And reflecting on his friend's astute comments, CLR James took this as a sign that a black person growing up in the United States had insight into what had been legitimated in more rarefied academic settings, what had been considered the opinion and attitude of the modern personality. And so to a degree, when I read um, CLR James's Beyond the Boundary, um, as a young person interested in sport and culture, I felt that I knew a lot of what he was saying about the intellectual life of society as a whole, right? In its informal and extra institutional aspects as much as its formal institutions. And when James starts beyond the boundary, by, not by talking about what he learned in the classroom, what he learned by reading Marx and Thackeray or other political and literary guides, he starts by what he learned from carefully watching and playing cricket, particularly watching his next door neighbor, Matthew Bonman, who was crude and vulgar in all areas of life, except when he started to bat, right? As a batsman, Bondsman was all grace and all style. And this struck me as a young man when I was reading Beyond the Boundary, growing up in a working class community in Merseyside during the 1980s, pretty decimated by Margaret Thatcher's conservative government. Um, unemployment rates were around 20 to 25%. The conservative government talked about putting Liverpool into what they termed, quote, Detroit style managed decline. And when I went out onto the streets, I'd always say, here you see me with Mega and Steve and some of my friends growing up. I'd always see Carl Shaw, our coach, and he'd had a uh, tracksuit that was ripped that didn't really fit him too well. And he'd just be walking around the streets. He didn't own a car. And what I learned from Carl was about his moral and political intelligence as a coach. Um, his willingness to sell his record collection so that um, many of my friends could go on holiday for the first time. He was willing to bench players if they made fun of someone, uh, if they had a disability. And what was helpful was that I was able to place Carl's vision of society, of a public sphere, that in, a, in conversation with a world in which, despite what Margaret Thatcher communicated, um, famously she articulated that there is no such thing as society, there are only individuals and families. Like this is kind of one way of thinking about neoliberalism and the valorization of entrepreneurial subjects. And the kind of drastic cuts to publicly funded arts. But I was fortunate enough to have access to public institutions, right? The art galleries and museums in Liverpool were free. Um, public television series, um, 
So I first came across Stuart Hall. On the BBC, you could record lectures from the Open University. They were normally broadcast from midnight to 6 a.m. So I'd record them with my grandmother and think about how knowledge could be shared in public realms, right? Brought into public realms for debate and discussion. I'd go to the public library, I'd read The Guardian on a Saturday and be able to write down the words that resonated, but I didn't quite understand. And I think this type of independent learning helped me a lot when I went to Oxford. Um, here you can see Hall at Oxford um, as a student at Merton College, and he talks quite uh, invitingly and compellingly about how he navigated the distilled Englishness of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar from Jamaica. What I experienced at Oxford was this situation where, you know, I, I went to maybe three lectures as an undergraduate. Most of the learning was in tutorials, right? One-on-one, -on -one, maybe two students at most. And what was helpful for me was following clues, following hints, and taking them into stimulating directions, right? That's one of the reasons why they have interviews to decide who gets into Oxford is the way that the tutors framed it was, we, we don't want to be bored for an hour, right? Sitting with someone and talking about their work. And this idea was that you could go off and develop original lines of inquiry for niche or specialized audiences, rather than narrow things down to two or three things that, and may be easily repeated, but can be oversimplified. So for all the obvious frustrations that I felt about hierarchy while navigating Oxford, um, the kind of distilled Englishness, um, the experience where there were so few black working class students, there were white working class students, and there were some wealthy black students, often international students linked to national and international political and economic elites. There was that also an awareness that it was also a place that I adored in many ways. I mean, Stuart Hall might not have been on many reading lists, but there was space to just go off and read Stuart Hall and place him in conversation with a eugenicist like Stanley Hall of the late 19th and early 20th century to think about British social and cultural history. Um, when I took courses on American politics, we might not have had Frederick Douglass on our required reading list, but we were encouraged to just go off and read Frederick Douglass in dialogue with Stephen Douglass and make I think about how people struggled to resist the system that said Black people had privileges but no rights. Um, and I think I remember just sitting in a tutorial um, seeing the piles of books scattered around, just looking around the office and thinking, and seeing my tutor take a, a phone call from what he described as his contact at parliament and just saying, okay, um, this'll do for me. I think I can, I can navigate and live and work in this environment. And I think that ambivalence is probably important to work through when we talk about transforming the university. Because I think like many folks who talk about working within, outside and beyond the university, it doesn't come from a place of just saying the university is irredeemably 
colonial and corrupt. It comes from a desire to transform the university so that it confronts its histories and its present of systemic anti-Black racism, colonial racism and xenophobia. And that there's also a desire to question the type of limited reform that promises to redress these historic and contemporary practices with what Jackson Lears has astutely described as a mix of entrepreneurial fantasy, managerial technique, identity politics, market-driven policies, and mystiques of meritocracy and technocratic expertise. Um, so I'll maybe leave it there just to briefly talk about that kind of background informs why I've often gravitated to idiosyncratic work, right? The kind of work that may be ambivalent about academic posturing, um, sometimes outrightly hostile. So in my book that's coming out in the fall, I talk about one cultural critic called Armand White, who talks about cautious and compromised academics, who uses that to critique the kind of Harvard as masters of the universe, the, the type of entrepreneurial intellectualism of Henry Louis Gates Jr., etc. But it's also working with figures such as Paul Gilroy, probably one of Stuart Hall's most noted students, to think about how intellectuals, even academics, can find important roles to play in contexts in which the life of the mind is often scorned. It's seeking to think about intellectual work within, outside and beyond the university and to see how we might push what is often routine and professional forms of discussion into livelier, more radical and creative directions whether that's as journalists who push against oversimplification and superficialities and the structuring capacities of the institutions in which they work, or whether it's as academics, as we confront performative and non-performative forms of diversity in our institutional lives. Um, Gilroy goes back to Paul, um, Bob Marley to talk about how a rebel spirit can conquer commodified cultures. But I think there's also a way of thinking with his work in the Black Atlantic to think about how we might, if not necessarily conquer them with our rebel spirit, smuggle moments of dissidence into them. Um, so yeah, I'd really like to learn and think with you, Vanessa, about um, maybe some of the learning environments in Europe that have informed your journeys of intellectual discovery um, inspired you, provoked you into learning. Thank you so much, Daniel, for, for sharing this. I've, I'm really inspired and I find it also so opening, um, also with regards to the, to, the, um, to the preparation meetings we had where we thought about like what would it mean to, to reflect upon our journeys um, within and towards Black studies. Um, and of course, I'm also super grateful to be here and to be in conversation. Um, and I would like to pick up the thread um, also with regards to, or zoom into some of my experiences and, and reflections um, on the university in terms of the question, what were the kind of learning environments um, actually 
that were important um, and that were nourishing and what were the kind of learning environments that were actually um, yeah, destructive and, and straight up violent and how does this also maybe speaks to a relational conversation because I think if we also take a kind of global um, black perspective then we will see many similarities but also differences. Um, and th that said, I, I, I don't know of how much people know with regard to the German context or continental European context more broadly, um, but just to say also briefly, there is no institutionalized black studies um, in Germany where I grew up, where I grew up in a um, predominantly white lower middle class uh, town coming from a working um, a black working class father, my mom um, actually is a, is a white German. And I went through a, through a three tier school system. The German school system is like super selective. And that's of course also has racialized implications. Um, and I was able to go to university. That's something like my father used to, uh, used to tell me because we are here, because he also migrated from a context where the university would be much, much more expensive. Um, so I found myself in this, okay, here it would be maybe different and, and more open, although of course there was a kind of unsettling um, already in school. Um, so I, after I graduated, which was also a whole experience of itself, and I love the way, Daniel, that you also bring in the kind of conversation or the kind of um, engagement with black intellectuals by the example of, of Stuart Hall and his speeches and um, his lectures being actually broadcasted um, and thereby also finding itself into finding themselves into the black intimate space. Um, and I think it's a it's a very nice connection in terms of how we think of the of the relation between the public intellectual um, and and the intimate. Um, so and the intimate found or the, the black public intellectual um, in, in that case for me, Angela Davis found, my, found her space in my intimate um, through, my, through my father who actually gave me a book of Davis, her autobiography um, at a very young age. I think I was like 12 or 13. Um, and when I then heard that Angela Davis uh, went to study philosophy, Marxism, critical theory with the philosophers of the Frankfurt School. So with Adorno, Horkheimer and Marcuse, um, I, that, that was where actually something grew in me that I would like to study philosophy. I also had philosophy in school, I really liked it. Um, but that was the point where I thought like, okay, I couldn't, I didn't have the vocabulary at that time to articulate it, but it was the kind of um, uh, imagination um, to, to engage with, with radical thought um, and with freedom, freedom projects. Um, so then when I went to university, actually the same university she studied at in Germany, Goethe University in Frankfurt, um, there was nothing about Davis. There was nothing about black materialist feminism, black critical theory. Um, and in fact, it was, so what I, what I longed for was black feminist analysis, black critical theory, what, what I actually got <laughs> was was racism right um so there was one incident where we all talked about our intentions um, of studying philosophy and i just 
um, narrated that I came across the work of Davis and I was so interested in, in thinking some of the issues she engages with further. And what I got was actually, well, was the question if ends were already allowed to study at that time. And this actually also shows how the, like not only how hostile the university itself is toward a black, black thought, uh, but also um, even when there is a strong uh, connection, right? I mean, Macron is being celebrated as a critical thinker, and he himself has said so often how much he learned from Angela Davis. Um, so I find that actually very interesting um, and troubling um, conundrum here. So it was actually very hostile, very white, very male, very bourgeois also. Um, and when I say this very white, I think this... I have to I have to give the the, the kind of um, more nuance to this because this means during the day, right? The university is a very white institution during daytime. In the evenings or in the early mornings, um, we will see migrant and racialized folks in the university, and this is something that Maisha Uma from a black feminist from from Germany often. Um, reminds us of when she says, well, the university is only a white space during the day. Um, so when I look back today, I sometimes think, well, how did I actually manage or how did we actually manage also other racialized students? Um, and I think how, how we did was that we found each other. Um, you find your, your people from other departments, from cultural anthropology, education, literature, even law. And, um, and we found each other and we actually looked for, um, for kind of an engagement which, with knowledges which took part outside of the seminars, outside of the curriculum um, in a way. So to also struggle against that kind of white isolation that articulates as a form of incarceration. Um, so when I see when I say find your people, I'm not just here referring to to black folks because I grew up actually with a very a political connotation of blackness, right? And there's also of course a history um, to that. So these were um, young students um, that were shaped by. Um, by anti-blackness in the German context, which is of course not just a context that is shaped or actually that is not at all or not not at all, but not so dominantly shaped by the Middle Passage, but rather by, by external colonialism, colonial migration processes, neo-colonialism, exile, migration from war in the broadest sense of the term. So it was like folks with African descendant, like who are African descendant, but also, um, students with, with parents from, from South Asian contexts, um, from other contexts, former colonies um, of the world, and also white radical folks. And we were engaging in black study in the sense like Robin D.G. Kelly would maybe think of it um, as not a kind of state uh, project, not a state inclusion project that has also domesticated um, a radical thought, but rather a kind of commitment, an intellectual commitment to black freedom um, and to, um, to freedom dreams. So, and, and what we did is actually we read a lot. Panon, Césaire, Claudia Jones, Walter Rodney, Davis, Combahee River Collective. But it was not only that we read these authors, it was also the kind of atmosphere 
that that was created by that right the kind of opening an intellectual opening that you were able to dream that you were able to make the connection work through the contradictions um, and that kind of stimulation is something that is really to me characteristic also to um to black study um, which always takes space takes space and place outside of the university like you already also pointed us to in terms of the cultural centers um, or the community centers but even like on the street like I when I was young I actually people would call it hang out <laughs> I was outside a lot right because a lot of us worked besides the university and I also had a lot of friends who were not going to university and the way to see them was still trying to engage with stuff that was happening outside. So it was important to stay connected. And sometimes I just had my readings and then read them at the back of the bus when I was actually like going back home really, really, really late in the night. But I think it's also because what's happening on these streets is also an articulation of black study, right? The cultural production, um, graffiti artists, skaters, break dancers, mostly done by migrant kids, right? The, the painting of, of the city, the painting of, of the urban space, that's such an expression of black study. Um, and the kind of, of course, music, the art production. So at that time in Germany, you had a group in Frankfurt called Black Souls, um, which actually also was very much engaged in kind of cultural and aesthetic production, but also in, I would call it black organic theorizing around forms of, of violence um, and anti-black violence and what it means to go beyond the, these. And this was connected to a critique of policing, of borders, of capitalism, of fascism. For us as folks growing up in Germany, um, the, the threat of neo-Nazism neo was always um, present. So it, it was important to think about how blackness or how the anti-fascism of blackness, for instance, was, was a very important uh, conjuncture. And I'm, um, it was only later, actually, it was the second year, I think, at my uni that I came across a student who was in contact with the, black, uh, with the initiative of black people in Germany. And I think this is quite interesting if we think here with, with Catherine McKittrick in terms of how blackness is always rendered absent and is present at the same time because what was interesting is that a lot of us um, were got to know black study outside of Germany um, where it was harder to engage with black study into or the black intellectuals or the black movements the black formation that were formed inside of Germany or from a German kind of um, context but it was actually that initiative, uh, initiative of black people in Germany that was founded in the 1980s um, that had set up uh, meetings or schoolish um, kind of workshops where we met to engage with that history. And that was where I came across Anton Wilhelm Amo for the first time. Um, we had a picture of him right at the beginning. Um, if we could go back some slides. Um, a black philosopher actually from the early 18th century who wrote his dissertation um, entitled the ure marorum in Europa, which you could translate into the rights of the black in Europe. And then we learned about black anti-fascists and communists like Hilarius Gilger, who was killed by the Nazis and, and other folks like uh, Joseph Biele, 
who was a, a black communist who was working with the communist international in Germany. And that was just opening, right? It was opening to see how a genealogy and to learn and to feel how a gene genealogy of black radical thought and practice and movement was actually buried in the context um, in which we were present. Um, and of course, I, I learned a, a, about the newer Black movement, especially the Black feminist movement. We just had a, a, a wonderful picture there of Maya Im and Katarina Obentoye um, and how they actually shaped um, so much of, of Black feminism that would become fundamental um, in terms of of um, Black feminism in Europe, but also in its transnational connections and conversations. So that said, a lot of that kind of archive, a living archive, um, I tried to mobilize that at the university, in the university, like you said, right? It's important then also to put these things into conversation. And I was lucky that I had a professor I never had a mentor at uni, but I had a professor who would just let me do that, right? When we read Marx, I was like, okay, I would like to write a paper on Walter Rodney's critique of, of capitalism. When we read Arendt on, on revolution, I said, I would love to, 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 to write a paper on, um, on C.L.R. James' notion of revolution. We read, uh, we read Simone de Beauvoir and I said, I would like to put Maya In into conversation with Angela Davis and Simone de Beauvoir. So nobody could really mentor that, but I think it was even a good thing that I could just do it. There was not anyone blocking it in a way, right? Although there was no mentorship, I was lucky, I would say, to, to be with a, to, to study with a professor who would just say, okay, let, I, I became the weirdo, just let her do her thing. Um, at least nobody like stopped it or, or punished me for it. But it was of course also not really taken um, seriously. And I think that's something um, that is still important in terms of for students who are also maneuvering um, these kinds of uh, institutional undoings and these kinds of forms of institutional violence to, to, to stay with the rage, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore say, but to also uh, open or allow the curiosity that comes with that rage, right? She says, well, rage and curiosity is actually a powerful thing. And I would add a kind of productive stubbornness, right? The kind of stubbornness that Harriet Tubman um, uh, actually put forward when she kept going and she kept moving. But this of course means that we need um, collective spaces where we can also recharge and, and nourish. And I think these reading groups um, and these, also the outside spaces I was, I was talking about before, those were the spaces that actually kept me and I, I cannot speak for other people, but I also think a lot of us sane um, in terms of maneuvering the university as a space that, um, that is fundamentally um, anti-Black and, and, and violent. And I think, and maybe this is something like I will um, end after this is with the, Robin D.G. Kelly has this wonderful um, text on a Black study and Black struggle. And the quote in that text reads, I want to think about what it means for black students to seek love from an institution incapable of loving them, of loving anyone perhaps, and to manifest this yearning by framing their lives largely through a lens of trauma. University will never be engines of social transformation. Social transformation. Such a task is the work of political education and activism. And I think this speaks to the kind of conundrum 
um, that black intellectuals and also black students, but people more broadly who engage with black study, right? Who engage with the project, projects of liberation and freedom actually have to maneuver that this happens in an institution which is set up to reproduce colonial racialized inequalities. It is set up to accumulate, to extract. Um, and it was always part of colonialism and colonial enslavement, right? I mean, where did the knowledge comes, comes from? This speaks to every discipline. Um, and at the same time, it was a site and is a site and reminds a site of radical transformations, right? We see that students were always a crucial part of radical transformations. Most of the um, actually black revolutionaries I cherish um, and, and many others went actually to university and took some of these tools and ran, right? Like Hugh P. Newton or Walter Rodney or Audre Lorde. Um, so I think it is also a site where, where black radical knowledge is also produced, never only produced. So I think it's the site of contestation um, and to think about how can we trouble the university more, particularly in a time where we see these modes of inclusion. And here, I think with Jinharita one who would call it murderous inclusion, um, because we also know from the histories that there's actually a kind of, of a force of institutionalizing black studies and thereby also pacifying it, domesticating it, um, appropriating it. And I think that's some of the conundrums that, that we find ourselves currently in. So that's, um, yeah, that we find ourselves currently in, and that maybe also lead to the question of what we envision or how to how we envision um, black study in this current moment and the possibilities of black liberation in the university. So, Daniel, I don't know. Maybe I like exactly. Um, play it back to you. I'm. We've talked about this letter. I would maybe draw uh, from a bit later, but I thought maybe you would like to um, join in here um, before we return to the letter. I'd really like to echo a lot of the things and thank you for sharing and opening up a space for us to think about the regulation of emotion, right? So for thinking about how rage justifiable anger is deemed inappropriate to allow us to think about what we understand as the acceptable boundaries of academic discourse. I think that's a really productive way to think through these ideas. Um, and also to think about reading practices. Like I love how you invite us to think with Catherine's work, but also Lisa Lowe's work about how we place different texts in conversation with each other. Um, so one of the things that I'm really engaged with and stimulated by is thinking about sometimes uh, the anxiety of influence or sometimes just citational practices that mean we don't always know or we're not always repeating were authors and who authors are in conversation with, right? So one of the things that I've always been interested in is, um, particularly in the new book that's coming out is, why don't we talk more about how the Black Atlantic is modeled on Edward Said's Orientalism, right? Why don't we talk more about how 
Gilroy modelled against race on Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. And opening up space for those types of uh, conversations, or even more broadly, and we can maybe speak about this after the letter, is to think about the types of disciplinary decadence that mean that we know an awful lot about what Fanon read to develop his ideas, to help us to think about lying in wait, to help us to think about anti-colonial practice. But we know rather less about the plays and the films that he watched that informed his uh, orientation to the world and his struggles. And so thinking about that as well as sport, um, as well as music can help us to expand what we understand as creative and collaborative knowledge making. Yes, yes, that's, I love that because it's so, and that's also what Black study is in its broadest and openness, you know? I mean, of course, on the one hand, referring to what you, you said before that how Gilroy also draws on Arendt and how that's, I think, and that's interesting because in Arendt, we see so much. I mean, she was also deeply anti-Black in, in a lot of uh, her, her work. And at the same time, you see how the Black is haunting her work. And I think this is also interesting, right? To see how even um, in anti-Blackness, there is so much um, Blackness that is haunting these, these works also in terms of how we think of liberation that in a lot of critical theory and a lot of critical thought, the blackness is present in the in either or the other way or even both. Um, and I also think it's so important to think of, of beyond um, or to think more about these kinds of outsides that at the same time are of course interrelated to, um, to knowledge production, right? Um, the films we watch, the music we hear, the social moments um, in the hallway right, of a university. And I think that's really what, what has to come in when we think about um, the possibility of, of black freedom and how this is, how this is relational, um, although relationality is not always this kind of easy thing. Sometimes it's a tension there too, specifically because there's such a focus on thought and, um, and less about, for instance, I don't know, the effective or the atmospheric. Um, I will turn to this letter now and maybe, because that was related to when we thought about the second questions, what were we actually longing for throughout our, or in, with regard to our learning environments and how could um, Black study in the university look like and feel like I was um, actually, when I thought about this question, when we prepared for this session, I, I came towards or was re reminded of something I did with my students um, in several classes, but particularly in one class, the Introduction to Black Studies at, at Goethe University. Um, and there was one session on the university, two sessions actually on the university, where students wrote a letter to the university now, it was interesting because, or on the university, it could be on or to, right? And, and we discussed this also, who would be the addressee, right? Um, 
And some of them framed it as a letter on the university so that people can themselves also decide how they feel interpolated by it, by the letter. And I, I will read parts of, I would say, a collage of the letter because it's something like I also wrote in a letter form, but a lot of the calls and the analysis are also part of um, kind of the ideas that students brought in. And at the end, actually, we made a collage of these letters. Um, so I will just read this and maybe it could also get us going and I think it's also quite nice because it's also from um, uh, from students who are at another who are not here but at the same time maybe we see certain similarities so a letter to the universe a letter on the university I'm not sure if the university can be decolonized um, if we think with Fanon it would mean to destroy it and to build something radically new this is not a one-time event. Freedom is a constant struggle, as Angela Davis reminds us, the same goes for abolition. It is reconstructing with what is there, at hand, refusal, it is composition. The university I longed for and still long for and would like to build collectively is a popular space. It is a radical democratic space. Fees must fall, abolish depth. I think I had a feeling of what space, of what, of what that space could look like in the collective learning spaces of the Black underground knowledge projects, like spaces I've talked, we've talked before, right? These spaces outside of the university. We came together and we read. We wanted to read because we were curious about what a world otherwise could look like. But we also heard the music, listened to the sounds about the possibility of that world. And we wanted to learn the practice of freedom this feeling was also there, at least in parts, at the global social forums I attended, when you build and learn collectively, when marginalized knowledges are moved into conversation across differences, when there are breaks, people take care of each other, build stuff together. There is space for weirdness, childcare programs. This feeling was also there in some of the colloquiums when I was a PhD candidate. Um, these were feminist, anti-racist, and anti-colonial trans and queer embracing spaces. Although very marginalized, they exist, find your people. And in some of the classrooms, when students and I are, were envisioning what a prison and military free world would look like, what will be there instead, and not just on a national level, when your imagination is wide open, that feeling of intellectual possibility. I remember some conferences, mostly in art spaces, free of charge with various workshops one could sign up for, and spaces in which ideas for new workshops could emerge. There were breakout rooms for people to take breaks. And one conference was international, scholars and students from India, Palestine, Senegal, South Africa, Guadeloupe, Central Asia, Southern Europe, Argentina, were discussing about current abolitionist and decolonial struggles in their context and how we can foster global decolonial education projects. There was space for our bodies, spiritualities, cosmologies. We need more space and more time for relational translation. And by the way, I think SNID is a beautiful platform to think about these possibilities further. Cops and soldiers off campus. Distribute labor, especially care labor, collectivize it. Let's remember ourselves continuously that black study also starts and is in constant conversation with the black person and people who clean our offices and departments, who clean the university, the facilities of the university. For a university otherwise, the university we envision, we must start with the question of who cares for the university, who cleans it, who feeds the people in the uni. 
It should not be a space of scarcity or capitalist hierarchy, but a space of collective learning, deep thinking, and radical engagement, relationality towards the unknown. The dualism between body and mind theory and practice, if that's one anyway, would be destroyed. We don't need it. Have you ever danced a poem, painted what a police-free world would look like? How would that sound if the sound of the police would finally vanish? In fact, sounds of resistance are not only resistance, are not only resisting, they are breathing a new world. What if urban planning would be non-carceral and starts from the lived experiences and perspectives of bodily disabled, poor and houseless folks, especially trans of color youth? We would all take physical geography to learn about how we can prevent further climate catastrophes. We would learn from folks from the global south how to survive in the unhabitable and what we can and must do here to prevent further damage. The thing is, in the current publication industrial complex, we are completely alienated from these kinds of knowledges. Have a look and inquire how much of the articles and books are actually written by people who are based in the global south. How can this ever be a global horizontal conversation? What if philosophy, the love of wisdom, philo standing for love in Greek, Sophia for wisdom, would attend to civilizations of life instead of civilizations of death, like the Zabatistas call it? What if the university would not be the space of the privileged learning, but of collective learning? What if physics would also be about building a generator from an old car battery? We would learn urban gardening and what vegetables and herbs are healing and how to grow and how to grow them. Paint the building, it needs more music. Entangle the temporalities. Indigenous knowledges from all, all over the world teach us that the linear notion of time is a trap. Our future is behind us, as François Vergès cites a proverb from La Réunion. We cannot see it, but the past and the present is before us. What would repair as a practice of the present look like? Black reconstruction is a reconstruction of worlds. Feminism does not come in waves, as my friend and comrade African feminist Hakima Abbas often reminds me, black feminisms are oceans. Smash the hetero cis patriarchy and disciplinarity. It was part of the problem in the first place. Black study shows us that it can't be, that it can't be part of the solution. Open the borders, all of them. Migrant, refugee, citizen borders, gender borders, in and outside borders. In fact, the world is connected and entangled. How can the university be a site of solidarity a refuge, a liminal space where seeds of freedom can grow. Going beyond the death of the university is attending constantly to its outside with what is there, all of it. Being in but not of the university, to echo Robin DG Kelly, is possibility, but also responsibility. Not all knowledges are safe here. Seize the time back and resist its call to diversify, rather attuned to the outside, to ungovernability within the university and guerrilla intellectualism outside of it. And I think it would be like, I was, I think to, I would like to end this letter, which is a composition of a lot of that students actually that we like made a collage of. And a lot of the students loved, and I love to actually the, the quote of, of Bell Hooks. And I think it's a nice uh, end for the letter. Um, Learning is a place where paradise can be created. The classroom with all its limitations remains a location of possibility. In that field of possibility, we have the opportunity to labor for freedom, to demand of ourselves and our comrades an openness of mind and heart that allows us to face reality, even as we collectively imagine ways to move beyond boundaries to transgress. This is education as the practice of freedom.
thanks so much, Vanessa. I'm conscious of the time, so I'm wondering if we can maybe open up space for questions. We have a brief musical interlude. I loved how you reminded us to think about breaks, pauses, rest, naps as important for thinking about what a university with a more human face may look like. Um, so I'll maybe just briefly uh, talk about the way in which we alluded to as uh, music as a site of learning, music as a site of constructing an anti-capitalist political stance. That might be music that speaks to a politics of work and its overcoming. It might be politics that speaks to law and its disassociation from racial domination. It might be music that speaks to um, a passionate belief in history and the recovery of historical sensibility. And just before Carolyn plays, this kind of brief remix of one of Gil Scott Heron's works of inspired, astute interventions. Um, we can maybe just think about how it speaks to a blues philosophy, right? So I think what is quite striking in our conversation is how we're seeking to think about how we can add content and cutting edge to theory that may be too abstract, but equally working in a and confronting an anti-Black world where racialized subjects are often seen only as exotic or exciting things for others to talk about, i.e. people who are uh, descriptive, we can describe what they're doing, but not seen as individuals capable of political and social thought. Right. And I think just thinking through a blues philosophy that articulated so beautifully Richard Eiton's Search for a Black Fantastic, which demonstrates how an archive of the blues unsettles conventional notions of the political, unsettles conventional notions of a public sphere. Vanessa articulated it so well in terms of disrupting certain binary thinking around mind and body dualism unsettling conventional notions that are dependent on the exclusion of Blacks and on other non-whites from meaningful participation. Um, and this maybe can open up space for us to think about what it is to be a space trader, someone who approaches the state as one frame of meaning among many, someone who is able to work with others to reconsider the status and state of closure and security accorded to national citizenship, to the passport, to the social insurance card. A space traitor that imagines politics that is allergic to the sensibilities underlying the national and to some extent the international and the transnational, so long as they reinscribe the nation state and figures that are suspicious of homeland narratives and indeed any authenticating geographies that demand fixity, hierarchy and hegemony. And perhaps last but not least, thinking about not just 
Vanessa and I as representatives of Germany and the UK, but to think and not just to think about how African-Americans interact with Ghanaians and Blacks in Canada or the UK, United Kingdom, but thinking about how we can engage with the ways Charleston, Marseille, Liverpool, Accra, and other cities on local spaces articulate with each other and more generally how the local can function as a site of diasporic rediffusion. Um, so yeah, maybe we can just play a couple of minutes of the track from Gil Scott Heron and uh, we can reconvene with, um, to borrow one of Gilroy's favorite phrases, more stimulating questions and discussion. Because of partial deification or partial accomplishment over partial periods of time. Halfway justice, halfway liberty, halfway equality. It's a half-ass year. And we would be silly in all our knowledge, in all our self-righteous knowledge, when we sit back and laugh and mock the things that happen in our lives to accept anything less than the truth about this bicentennial year. And the truth relates to 200 years of people and ideas getting by. It got by George Washington. The ideas of justice, liberty, and equality got cold by George Washington. Slave owner general. Ironic that the father of this country should be a slave owner. The father of this country, a slave owner, Having got by him, it made it easy to get by his henchmen, the creators of this liberty, who slept in the beds with the captains of slave ships, fought alongside black freedmen in the Union Army, and left America a legacy of hypocrisy. It's a blues year. Got by Gerald Ford, oatmeal man. Has declared himself at odds with people on welfare, people who get food stamps, daycare children, the elderly, the poor, women, and people who might vote for Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, it got by him, Hollywood. Acted like an actor, acted like a liberal, acted like General Franco when he acted like governor of California, now he acts like somebody might vote for him for president. Got by Jimmy Carter, Skippy. Got by Jimmy Carter and got by him and his friend the Colonel, the creators of Southern Fried Triple Talk, a blues trio. America got the blues. It got by Henry Kissinger, the international godfather of peace. A piece of Vietnam, a piece of Laos, a piece of Angola, a piece of Cuba. A blues quartet. And America got the blues. The point is that it may get by you for another four years, for another eight years. You stuck playing second fiddle in a blues quartet. Got the blues looking for the first principle, which was justice. It's a blues year for justice. It's a blues year for the San Quentin Six. 
looking for justice. It's a blues year for Gary Tyler, looking for justice. It's a blues year for Reverend Ben Chavis, looking for justice. It's a blues year for Boston, looking for justice. It's a blues year for babies on buses. It's a blues year for mothers and fathers with babies on buses. It's a blues year for Boston. And it's a blues year all over this country. America has got the blues. And the blues is in the street looking for the three principles, justice, liberty, and equality. We would do well to join the blues looking for justice, liberty, and equality. The blues is in the street. America has got the blues, but don't let it get by us. Thank you so much for that conversation, Daniel and Vanessa. That was absolutely beautiful. And thank you for putting yourself into that and sharing so much of your um, experience in the Academy. That's uh, such a gener generous and generative conversation um, for all of us to engage with. So thank you. Uh, so we will be taking questions via chat. Uh, you can raise your hand if you like, um, and Aichen and I will facilitate that. We do already have one question in the chat. So I will read through that for you from James McNutt. Uh, so James is asking or commenting, this was a very engaging presentation. I was just wondering and thinking about framing black studies in institutionalized settings. Is there a black studies canon? If so, what is this canon comprised of or is the very idea of a canon reinforce white supremacy and colonialism? Uh should I, Daniel, do you want to go or should we just, I say something, then you, then you jump in? Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for that question, James. I think it's a really, really important one um, because the canon is, um, is tricky, right? I mean, if I, 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 on the one hand, I, I would say it's so important to stand even against the canonization, because I, I the, with the canonization, if we think of what the canon actually means, um, comes a hierarchization in terms of like what is considered more important or what should be more acknowledged um, when it comes to um, to knowledge production. Like if we think of canonization in the field of 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 of, of knowledge production and 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 thought and. At the same time, I would also say there are some, it's like the conversation around the classics, right? At the same time, I, I would say, and there go, comes maybe the ambivalence in there are some works that are um, crucial in terms of how they shifted also to speak with Lewis Gordon, the geography of reason. But I think it's important to also like Daniel also mentioned so beautifully, maybe challenge the kind of individualism that is implied in, if we put for instance, CLR James, um, the Black Jacobins as a canonical work for Black thought. I think it's important to pay tribute to that work and to acknowledge it and to really make space for its, um, for its crucial uh, uh, impact right and for, for its crucial also historical um uh role at the same time 
we need to de-individualize that work, right? Selma James was writing a lot of it. And she was not only writing a lot of it, she was also in constant conversation. We cannot think of um, individual liberatory projects. There's often the labor done by women or non-binary folks that are constantly in conversation, that are helping with typing, um, that, are, that are also interlocutors, intellectual interlocutors, and are doing the kind of domestic work, you know, and are also on the front line of politics. So here's one layer of de-individualization. But there's also the further layers that Daniel also pointed us to, uh, Daniel pointed us to in terms of what was the kind of what were the conversations that CLR James was also having? What were the kind of cultures, what were the kind of cultural productions he was engaged in, right? So this is just one example to think that I think it's important to, to think of, 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 of crucial works, but at the same time, de-individualize the context on the, on the conditions under which these works could even emerge. And I think there we are um, by creating something new. It would be something otherwise than a, than a canon. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, James, for the question too. Um, I, I completely agree about the, the dangers of exaggerated individualism. So I think you can connect this question around canon building to the politics of recognition and the sense in which you know, we acknowledge why it's important for subaltern groups to seek recognition from a state that has so often despised and marginalized them. But equally, we need to think about the limits of that recognition, right? To think about if it is simply a question of boosting an individual, we get a racialized subject on the $5 bill and we're told, what more do you want? Right. We get a radical and collective black public sphere often being reduced to a celebration of entrepreneurial black intellectuals. Right. So this is the kind of thing people talked about in the early 1990s were the kind of deep work that was needed to engage in careful listening and reading of a black public sphere often get uh, subverted or challenged by liberal newspapers and outlets that said, well, you can just buy a book by Bell Hooks, right? Or in a more recent time, um, why bother doing the work of thinking about what it is to build a more just world when you can buy how to be an anti-racist, right? These types of commodification. And to build on Vanessa's point around the importance of Lewis Gordon's work in this context. It's also to avoid treating theorists as gods, right? So there is this tendency, I mean, you see it in lots of work where people think, well, if we just mention Stuart Hall, if we just note our connection to this work, we don't have to do anything more. It's simply this notion of, um, Vanessa talked about domestication, um, you can even think about it in relation to Edward Said's work around traveling theory. Like part of the job is not to simply memorialize and codify and simplify what others have done so that we can convey it to undergraduate students. It's also to think about how we translate them to 
or the context so that the radical energy is retained, right? We're not simply saying, this is what you need to know about Judith Butler. This is what you need to know about Gilroy to pass a test. But how do you enter into conversations as part of an ongoing conversation and make those ideas your own or translate them for and with local contexts, local struggles? both um i have a comment uh, in the chat from tony and soon it will be echoed by many uh right now uh, no question just blown away thank you and i see uh jonas's hand up thank you very much uh professor daniel and for sharing your lived experience um I, I really love the Robin Kelly cult. And I think that's the beauty of Black studies, if I can put that way. Um, a place that we can go as Black students, but we know that uh, to seek love from an institution incapable of loving ourselves. And uh, that's very interesting because we know that we are talking about a space of you have an elite that a university a space of production of knowledge and rationality. But we know that for black students, we go to the university, we have Kant, I'm going to try to be, you know, fast. We have Kant, racism there. Open book for us, not an, an intellectual exercise. It is our experience we are always there somehow in the negative sense right now i think two years ago the co-linear society admitted because of black lives matter movement that the origin of scientific racism starts with linens but let's be blunt if logic exists any black student or anyone who knows about critical theory of race knew that doesn't make sense that production. And it's not only that, it's the whole enlightenment. It's a, a revolution that we are living with. If you, if you know, based on our skin, our lived experience, or if you study, we know that it's impossible to agree with the knowledge that we produce. I'm not saying that throughout everything, but the European school of thought called enlightenment doesn't make sense because it's going back, right? The progress is back. They wanted to have equality. But when they get in Brazil and that they invade Conquer, when they try to translate the Tupi Guarani language, they learned that it was very hard to catechize the indigenous. Why? Because they didn't have a sense of the divine or the idea of inequality or superiority. But, you know, 300, uh, three centers after 300 years, we decide that we want a liberal democracy, we want a democracy and we want to be equal. So again, we have the university. I think blackness is a paradox at the university. I agree with your students, but this is what you did. Um, so can I assume that what you are going through now that everyone looking for black studies, which is amazing, which consequence of our resistance, our movement, our struggle, but that same system one had already taught it and there is a place for us. I mean, if you go to Queens and you have not experienced racism, 
I don't know, but it's a very racist place. And there is a place for black studies and black intellectuals. So my question is, it's not the case that we should somehow create a kind of sabotage within the university, but sabotage, I don't mean something negative, you know, but one way that we can somehow create the new, a different space without, you know, being playing this money can power to use Fernand that is there waiting for us. Because just to finish, for example, diversity, we talk a lot about, about diversity, but I have never seen at the university saying that we have to hire white people because diversity will increase the university. What I see is we have to, uh, to, to hire people from diverse background because it's good for the production of knowledge. What's behind it here? My life is an attaché. There is a hierarchy. The white is on top, if I don't talk about that. And because hiring black or diverse people, it will increase the university, which means if otherwise, they will not hire us. It's the same example of with thinking dollar, right? So my question is, what to do? What's going on with this movement that I hope is a becoming rather than only change? Because it's half long time ago with Black Studies, the, the civil rights movement. What should we do? Thank you very much. Should we do it the other way around this time, Daniel, that you go first and I say something, I add into that? Oh, sure, sure. Um, thanks. I mean, we've, we've talked about Marx, but now we've got a nice chance to think through Lenin and what is to be done. Right. So thanks so much, Jonas, for that question that I think helps us to address questions around expertise, extractive knowledge, but also to link it back to the previous question, the perils when the knowledges of communities are translated into the epidermal schema of individuals, right? So, so the university can hire lots of non-Black individuals who are not necessarily committed to Black liberation. Right? That's an obvious point that I think we can repeat and maybe is helpful to repeat um, in the face of uh, administrative bodies that, uh, yeah, again, to riff on Robbins Kelly's point, that do not really care, right? Do not really care. Some of the other points that I think your question, your intervention speaks to is, again, thinking more seriously about what it is to shift the geography of reason, what it is to attend to colonial forms of knowledge that have uh, demonized, uh, failed to listen, failed to carefully listen to indigenous knowledges, to African ways of thinking and being, and simply place them outside of history. And more, perhaps more pointedly, the way I'd think it through is to think about what it is not just the sabotage, but what it is to conspire, right? What it is for us to come together, to dream together, to think together, to conspire, right? To imagine a different future. And by that, I'm also thinking through uh, one of the texts that, that informed my 
intellectual development a lot was um, Paul Gilroy's There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, which is written in the 1980s when there was this, as Vanessa talked about, um, a campaign and a fight and a struggle against racism and fascism. And the fascists in the UK would have this chance, right? There is no, there ain't no black in the Union Jack. And it's clear when we think about neoliberal capitalism that that is no longer true, right? There is black in the Union Jack. I went to school with the current chancellor of the Exchequer, right? He was there at Oxford, right? Um, so blackness is there, but what is important for us to think about is what are the conditions and what are the forms of comportment with which blackness enters into the public sphere, right? So Aiton again is a wonderful and valuable resource in terms of engaging and transporting and transforming Fred Moten's work to talk about how, <laughs> this is quite topical, um, Chris Rock entered into, and Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy and others entered into a commodified American public sphere in the 1980s quite literally as speaking and shrieking commodities who expressed unambiguous fear and mistrust of women, gays, the black working class and others. And so there was a space for that type of hyper-individualized performance, right? how to create and generate a brand. Um, but that came at the expense of thinking about a different, or, or it was maybe to use a better term, it was always in relation and was often at the expense of marginalizing collective movements that invited us to think differently about what black protest, black struggle, um, black consciousness can mean, where black consciousness to use Biko's definition is never just about pigmentation, but about a willingness to fight neocolonialism wherever it may be in the world. Yeah, thank you for that question and also for um, sharing your um, perspectives, Daniel. I think so much is already said on this question, right? And I think it's really like already here with your question, um, Jonas and, and, and your um, reflections, Daniel, because I think it's, it's obvious that the kind of invitation also, although it's a result of a struggle too, right? I think that's really important in terms of when we think about who struggled for black studies, right? And um, here to know that it's, it's a lot of colleagues, particularly black, but it was also folks who stood in solidarity and are standing in solidarity who are, um, who are actually um, supporting that project. And I think that's also interesting because that makes them also part of that project. That's what black politics is, right? Black politics is black, but never only. That's, I think, if we think of the Haitian revolution and who fought during that revolution, it was also Polish land workers, right? Um, who were, at that time were not even white. So black freedom projects are never just black. I think that's a very important point. Also, if we think of it as a university, it's not just a black skin color thing. Um, and with regard to how the university as an institution that is of course also changing and shifting, right? I mean, there are also conjunctures of the university and the university is also a very national specific institution. If I compare it, for instance, like 
my feeling or my experience now when I look into the North American university complex, it's much more commodified, right, and corporate than still a lot of the universities, for instance, when you compare it with France or whatever, where you don't really have student fees, for instance, right? That doesn't mean students are not struggling or that there's not new engines or engine like logics of neoliberalization kicking in. But I think we also have to, to attune to these kinds of differences. But that said, as an institution, although there are these kinds of um, specific, specificities, um, it has always been a very exclusive and extractive institution in terms of that the university was the handmaiden also of enslavement and colonialism, right? It's not just a side note, like that's where the major, you, you mentioned the enlightenment, right? I thought like Hegel, Kant, all these people uh, were not only rude racists, but they were actually also, um, they actually, even in their enlightenment thought, pushed forward a kind of notion of civilization and progress that is based on um, the extermination and the colonization and enslavement of the majority of the, of the, of the, of the people of this world. And I think that's, that's this kind of, we could talk about colonial dialectics here, right, in a way, and how to, how to challenge that. So, and at the same time, I think also, when it comes to the how how cogito uh, ergo sum, how the the connotation of being is even thought in the university, right? Why is it so hard to bring bodies in the university, right? Even for us, when we read and write and talk, like why is it so? This has to do with this kind of legacy, right? Why is it so hard to to convince even when we think of conferences? that people also need space for their kids, you know, or for the care relations we engage in, right? So it's really, it's, and that's why I'm saying for everyone actually, it is in a way, or maybe for a small minority not, it is a, a thriving institution. For a lot of folks, there are moments of thriving, but the university itself is through its extractivist logics and accumulating logics, also a kind of um, uh, capitalist, racial capitalist, racial gendered capitalist apparatus or part of, of this kind of apparatus. And I think um, when it comes to, and at the same time, um, and that's what the contradiction is I was, I was trying to, 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 to get to. At the same time, there were various notions of different strategies by um, radical intellectuals of how to deal with that. You just mentioned sabotage, right? And I think that's very important. Spivak has this has this notion of affirmative sabotage, right? That you would also use the tools of the university to create something else, right? And I think that's what Fanon and many others did in terms of like going also in the university. There's this good uh, by by um, uh, actually Fred Moten um, in the Undercommons uh, book where you have the 10 thesis on the university, right? Where they talk about how um, the relation to the university can only be a criminal one, right? That you steal what you can to then also create something else. Then we have Audre Lorde's notion of the master's tool will never dismantle the master's house, right? It cannot be the sameness. It's not the same tools. By using them, we're also abusing them and doing something else, right? So there are these various and I'm just bringing these examples in to think about how can we, what kind of strategies people already have employed, right? And I think one of the very important ones is here, of course, uh, Walter Rodney, right? In, in terms of telling also um, 
black students and black intellectuals to become and to remain guerrilla intellectuals, right? Which would mean that you attend also the Intellectual Freedom Project or that it's in direct horizontal conversation with the social movements um, that are actually doing the also active work of liberation, right? And I'm not saying that this is always an easy thing because I also think that it's important to also not bring everything into the university, right? I mean, and this is something we've seen in migration studies, refugee studies, that it can become dangerous in terms of, particularly in the neoliberal university, right? Why should you research the, the flight routes of, of people that are trying to, to cross the, the deadly Mediterranean, the black Mediterranean, right? We've seen how through the privatization of the university, you have private firms then getting hold of that knowledge and it's, and it's translated directly into Frontex border politics, right? So these are kind of things to really think about what we also have to think about what should not actually be even, like sometimes silence it can challenge power too. Right? It's not always speaking against. It's also sometimes being silent, staying in the underground, leave things in the underground. And I think that's also important for us as, as researchers and as scholars and as students. Um, when it comes to, I mean, we see the commodification of difference now, particularly with regard to the neoliberalization of the university. Nilma Pouvoir has this beautiful phrase where she said, actually, we're now in the university for the same reason that we're not part of it before. Right. So it's still racism, so to speak. Right. That actually um, that difference now becomes uh, becomes a kind of is, is commodified. It's a market asset. It's a, it's a neoliberal kind of stream uh, lining. Um, and at the same time, there's the question, even within that movement, what can we do with that, right? How can we use that to abuse it and to then also do something else with it? And I think that there is possibility um, in that, but it's, and with this possibility comes a certain responsibility and the need, and that's, I put this text by Robin D.J. Kelly here in the chat because it's a really good text that reflects upon that, on the, necess on the necessity of struggle, right? Because um, struggling with the movements, but to figure out what that with actually means, also in terms of privileges, um, and, and at the same time also struggle within the university, because the university has one thing, it has the, the capacity or the possibility, I think, also lays in, in relation to time, right? That there's time to retire. This is becoming more and more marginal, like people, have, we have to seize the time in the university, right? The time we need to do research, to do good work, right? Good enough work, right? For kind of black freedom projects. Like how, if we think of how people like, like these good works, like they need time, right? Good teaching and engaging with students needs time. That's also taken away from us with the neoliberal university. So there we have the extraction of labor on that, on that front. Then of course, the kind of what are, what are, what are the working conditions currently, right? Of people uh, being hired as adjunct, people, the staff, right? Or even the people who are cleaning the university and doing all subtractors now. I don't know how it is here, but in, in Europe, that's the way it has been going, right? So that are, these are all mechanisms that, that where we need to think about, okay, we, why do we have to also engage with the movements? It's also because the question of labor is also so central for us as academic workers, right? So 
And I'm, I'm saying this because I think it's a site of struggle. It's a site of struggle like everywhere else. And that's where I, I do agree to say we need to, to create something different, but that can happen. It's a both end. That can happen in the university, but also in relation to the to the many pluriversal outside of the university. Because I think it's not something we can just um, give up. I think it's important, important to also struggle within, within the university, but always in conversation with the outside. And that's, I think, and that's why I want to briefly also relate to the to the to parts of the global south again, right? You mentioned Brazil. And I think it's very, very important, of course, for black studies, because Brazil is one of the key sites of black knowledge production, of black freedom struggles, even now of abolition, although people don't really talk about it. But I think this also means shifting the geography of reason is really the struggle against methodological nationalism, but also the struggle against methodological Westernism or methodological global Northism or how you would call it, because it's we need each other. Like that's something I learned from my student when we were engaging with um, now actually in the time of war in Ukraine, where a lot of the people are doing hands down work to help African and other marginalized groups who are even who are being kept by fleeing from Ukraine. And those who, who know the best how to do that are the ones whose parents or themselves had to flee war from Somalia, from Libya or what have you, right? Because they, and that's where you see we need each other. In times of these kind of genocidal projects, we need the global routes of emancipatory knowledge and resistance that is part of these archives. Um, and I mean, if even if we go into climate catastrophes, there you see it again, right? That we are so dependent on the global south in in so many in so many forms. Um, and I hope and wish, and I know with the colleagues here actually who envisioned Black Studies to be a global project, um, although we attend to the local, I think that's what, um, what, uh, what needs to happen and what is already happening. Thank you both. I cannot express how much I appreciate. Um, I, much, I appreciate this conversation with you both. Um, it is really, truly a privilege. Uh, I, just to echo what I just said, thank you so much for for this wonderful conversation. Um, I know I'm feeling like very pumped up from from the note you just left off of uh, there, Vanessa. So thank you so much, both of you, everyone who's engaged in this conversation in the, the comments, who've asked questions, who's just been here in the audience. Um, thank you so much for the time, for all of your time today, especially at this this point in term. Um, yeah, so thank you. This is this is the end of SNID for this year. Uh, so we're we're very grateful to have had you along for the, the ride. Um, and for anyone who's interested in giving a SNID talk next year or know of people who would be good speakers um, who fit within kind of this like an anti-colonial um, perspective that you please let Aicha or myself know, send us an email and we'd be more than happy to uh, create a list for next year as well of, of speakers along Spain. So again, thank you everyone, especially Daniel and Vanessa, but everyone. Um, and shout out to Dairon, who's been student coordinator all year. Phenomenal work. Thank you so much, Dairon, for, for all your hard work. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Thanks, Aicha. Thanks everyone for putting this together. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. 
um, and the possibility to be in conversation with you. I also love the series and I'm so looking forward to further, um, yeah, to see what, what will be there for next term. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.